Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. I have some really frightening news to start off Happy Hour today. Oh, no. Do share. Do you, are you aware that there is a human sacrifice experiment undergoing, uh, happening right now in the state of Georgia? No, tell me all about it, Julie. Now, let's keep in mind, the governor of Georgia is Stacey Abrams. So, well, of course, she will be held accountable for this. <laughs> Sorry, that's so funny. This is like, in her mind, Stacey Abrams is the How governor of Georgia. Stacey, how is Stacey Abrams allowing this human sacrifice experiment to go down in the lovely state of Georgia? This would never happen under a Stacey Abrams administration. <laughs> <clears throat> so, of course, uh, this is the headline out of a piece from The Atlantic, who we can always rely on for just the most ridiculous takes of all time, right up there with Politico and The New York Times. But um, reporter Amanda... Mull. This is actually her headline. Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. The state is about to find out how many people need to lose their lives to shore up the economy. Um, So, first of all, there's no shoring up this economy. Today, we have more bad unemployment figures. We're now at 30 million people abruptly out of a job in the course of five to six weeks. So this isn't like a little blip, a little downturn in the economy. This is a major catastrophe, unprecedented in American history. Yes. So to to try to portray this as lives versus money or jobs or greedy capitalism, of course, is such a phony, destructive argument. But that's the one that The Atlantic is making because, of course, the real legitimately elected governor, Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, is uh, more aggressively than anyone else reopening that state for business. Right. And so um, the same people who are going to say that there should be no no deaths from this horrible virus are also very upset that there's, you know, shortages of products, services have slowed down. Um, family businesses and their friends are unemployed. So it's kind of like, make up your mind. You know, if you don't want the economy to open up, then you need to be okay with the fact that we're going to be going back to like a caveman time type of existence where we're not going to have the comforts that we're used to and the conveniences. But if you are, you have to get used to the fact that Sadly, until there's a vaccine, which even a vaccine doesn't guarantee that we'll get wipe this this out. We have a flu vaccine and we have a lot of people that get the flu and the flu comes every year in different forms. So you this is sadly going to be factored in our life going forward. And every year we have 60,000 plus deaths from the flu, although apparently in the last three months, we've had zero deaths from the flu and some miraculous miracle. miracle. Um, But just like the flu, we have tens of thousands of people that die from the flu every year. And we don't shut our economy down for that. We didn't shut our economy down for H1N1. So it's, this is just part of a 
political operation to drive people, drive unhappiness with the president. I, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Yes. Yes. So. It undoubtedly is. Now, what will unfold in Georgia will be very interesting because, of course, they have had a low number of fatalities. Um, not, I mean, they definitely have a few 10,000 cases of coronavirus. Their hospital and healthcare system has not been overwhelmed at all. So it actually, in the pursuit of so-called science, this is exactly what you want to see happen, right? So you want to compare a state like Georgia to another similar state, one that is locked down, and see where the trend line goes. Now, there might be an uptick in some fatality rates in Georgia, um, but it, it's not happening in a vacuum. The counter is, can we open safely? Can we somewhat go on with our normal lives, understanding that this virus is still going to be deadly to certain populations. But overall, we have to figure out a way how to get back to normal versus other states that are going to be locked down into June, maybe now even July. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think in Virginia, the governor originally said last week that he thought it would take two years to get to stage one, which was not met with enthusiasm by my fellow uh, re residents of Virginia. And now he's walked it quite a bit back and said that he's not ex like renewing, I think tonight at midnight or something, um, some of these regulations that allow for elective procedures. Now veterinarians can perform surgeries and all of these other restrictions. He's going to let those lapse. So I guess that's a step in the right direction. But back to your original point, about comparing the states, um, it's it. There's a temptation, not by you, but by the media, to strictly look at the death tolls in in two locations. One area that's shut down, one area is that that's not totally shut down or not shut down at all. But there are consequences, and while it may appear that the death rate is lower in areas that have locked down, there also ultimately will be other problems that arise, like people not getting medical treatment when they need it, people not going to get um, their chemotherapy, people not getting diagnosed with a deadly disease, um, things like that, that will also happen because people are afraid to go to the doctor, they're not allowed to go to their doctor, or I guess they have to talk to their doctor on the phone and they can't get examined. So it's really more complicated than than just a simple, what's the death count? And something that we're not talking about, and I think it's a little uncomfortable, um, but it still needs to be talked about, is that we were told that we were doing this so we wouldn't overwhelm our healthcare system. So it seems at this point, we're not, we're not overwhelming our healthcare system anymore. I just read this morning, New Jersey sending off their ventilators somewhere else. They don't need the ventilators. And New Jersey was a big hotspot along with New York. Mm -hmm. So if we're not, if we're not overwhelming our, our healthcare facilities, why should we continue to stay? Like, why can't we learn to integrate this into our daily lives as usual? with certain precautions for people who are especially vulnerable. You know, it's like the goal went from protect, you know, keeping our healthcare systems operating and not overwhelming them to nobody is going to get the virus and die. Right. Which is 
absolutely, you know, that that's just, that's out, that's outrageous. We don't, there's nothing else that we apply that standard to, not the flu, not the cold, not car accidents, nothing else. So. Well, and to your point, it has not just not overwhelmed the healthcare system. It is decimating the healthcare system with unintended consequences. Yeah. So um, there's a report out that half of the uh, first quarter drop in GDP, which I believe came in around four or five percent, um, negative four or five percent, half of it is is tied to the healthcare system, not the closure of uh, any type of healthcare service, elective surgeries, etc., is decimating this sector, the greatest healthcare system in the world. Um, And so it's just one more of those unintended consequences and bad decisions of shutting of shutting down the healthcare system to anybody else except for COVID-19 patients, rather than trying to figure out regionally how they could handle it and still serve the needs of, you know, tens of millions of Americans who need it for a variety of reasons. So just one more bad decision that we've been told by the experts. Well, that was always a problem with these models that that made the assumption that this virus would manifest uniformly across the United States when we have such geographic distances there's there are and and geographic um whether it's terrain spread out compact warm weather versus cold weather we just had such different situations there's no way this virus is ever going to be exactly the same all over our country we hear a lot of comparisons with south korea um, that, oh, South Korea did this, South Korea did that. Yes, South Korea is like or, the size of Oregon or something. It's very small, and their outbreak was really confined to their major city, Seoul. And, um, they had a much more uniform presentation of of the virus. Here, it's, it's just totally different, from even from state to state. And yet, we were all forced or pressured I'll say many were forced but everybody was pressured to sort of adopt this let's all hide away and now that we have some research um, that was revealed at one of the president's press conferences I think it was on Thursday or Friday of last week where we learned that UV light really cuts the half-life affects the half-life of the virus and we have summer coming up we might have even more you know, it's going to be warmer in places where it was cold and where we did have a lot of virus. So plus nobody mentions this. I mean, they mention it to be sensational um, and to fear monger, but not in context of the whole picture. You know, what percentage of nursing homes had fatalities? That isn't necessarily a good example of the way in which the, a virus infects a a city, an organic city, right. you know, this is a very specific circumstance. Um, and so there's such a high death rate and sickness infection rate in these nursing homes. Um, th- those aren't, that's not necessarily accounted for. It's all kind of lumped in as, as a consequence of the same thing. When in fact, it was very different. If you, inter- if you introduced a new flu strain that, that, was not was resistant to the flu shot and as you know there's always new flu strains that are resistant to the vaccine and you introduce that into um, a nursing home you would probably have a very similar 
situation with people getting very, very sick and who are already compromised to, to, you know, in a battle against something like this. So the situation is much more complex, but that doesn't make good headlines. And it certainly isn't good for fear mongering. It's not. And I mean, as far there's plenty of reason to be skeptical about the death count that we're seeing. So last week we hit the Vietnam Festival uh, <laughs> before it was like you know nine eleven and then they just how long were they waiting to whip out the Vietnam number you know oh, you could just see them with like, like a countdown board in the newsrooms like okay two more days until Vietnam number we're still in Saigon we're back um, <laughs> but to your point the nursing home fatalities in some states um, more than half of the total fatalities are tied to nursing homes, long care, uh, long-term care facilities. Uh, in New York, it's right now about a quarter of the deaths. I would suspect that it's higher than that. We also know that per CDC guidance and the practice of states, because they are reimbursed for COVID patients, they are coding deaths to COVID-19 for either the you know the, the suspected cause of death even without any kind of confirmation or testing. So it's going to be a long time before we really drill down to see where all the fatalities were. But since about half of the total is from three states, uh, which would be New York, New Jersey, and I believe Connecticut is next to that, um, there are so many states with fewer than 100 deaths. So what we were told with the modeling is that this posed a threat nationwide to every one, every segment of the population. And we now know that that's not true. And we know the people that we should have been protecting, nursing home residents and people who work there were not. So, and that's really a national tragedy. While we're shutting down grade schools, we're keeping people trapped in nursing homes, not just vulnerable to the disease, but also away from their families and loved ones. Keep these poor older people, seniors in nursing homes who can't see their families, even as they're like on their deathbed, are kept away. And so that is going to be a story that needs to be told, you know, in the future. And also, it wasn't even a question of protecting nursing homes, right? In the case of New York City, they, they were, or New York State, they were actually like assisting the virus, infecting yeah. people by forcibly forcing these nursing homes to accept COVID positive patients, which, I mean, there's got to be some story to this. I want to think that the New York officials, elected officials, aren't that stupid. And there has to be some like money angle, but I can't rule it out that they're that stupid either. But Mm -hmm. I I mean, what about, think about that. If you, if your family member died because the idiot, was it the governor who's, who mandated that they take them? The governor in New York, it was the head of the New York State Health Department issued a memo March 25th that instructed nursing homes to readmit their residents who had been hospitalized for coronavirus and that they could not reject readmitting them um, or admitting any patient or forcing them to test for this virus, that they had to readmit them back into the nursing home. And they pleaded for help. There's a story, I wrote about it this week. Um, The owner or executive of a Brooklyn nursing home begged the state to help them move some of their COVID-19 patients to uh, the U.S. Comfort, the big naval ship that was docked outside of New York City, because 
they were suffering such an outbreak they couldn't control it and that New York state officials told them no yeah that's a, that's just you know what these those people yes. are like murderers as far yes. as i'm concerned that's your that's your murderer like the ship is empty right the comfort's empty what about that's the javits right. center right? right also empty right thousands of what is it thousands of beds i don't know what trump you know trump's always talking about that and they put these poor people back into a nursing home yes they did. literally it's murder so where is the experiment in human sacrifice actually happening? Was it happening? In, is it happening in Georgia or was it actually happening in happening in New York City nursing homes that they were aware of, that they actually ordered this policy that is responsible for thousands of nursing home resident death just in New York City alone? And this also was a policy in New Jersey. It was a policy in California. So that's why now we're finally learning about these nursing home deaths. The flip side is we're just learning more and more how many people have been already infected with this virus, people who were asymptomatic to it, people who have recovered with no long-term or even short-term health effects. Um, and so I just feel we are in a few months going to increasingly find out that everything we've done to combat this so-called pandemic has been not just wrong, but, but very wrong. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, um, I think you're right. Just, just it's, it's hard in the middle of it when we're getting kind of a mishmash of data and a lot of people are getting information remotely. Like I, I'm not on the ground in these states. I do have to depend on the media giving me this information. And, and oftentimes it's, not hard numbers, even the numbers themselves, it's hard to say, you know, is it do, when we get test results back, is it that they got their results on this day or were that's the day they were tested? I mean, it's just, it's a mishmash, but one day when it is straightened out, I think we're going to see what a terrible, what all the terrible missteps in this. I do. Um, we are. And I mean, you and I, we've been talking about this for two months, you know, I mean, I've in our just separate texts to each other, you know, I've been a skeptic about this from the beginning, probably. <laughs> yeah, you were early adopter, Julie. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is because I was I've I'm so skeptical of what I hear from the scientific community and from the experts and anyone related to the World Health Organization, just because I've covered that stuff before. So when I see the same pattern playing out. Um, it just raises all kinds of red flags for me, but, um, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying you and I have been talking about this for, for months. And <clears throat> I think too, you can also see the scientific community, which is very agenda driven, very partisan, you know, it's run by progressive wacko left wingers. Um, they, they kind of hide behind their credentials and they, uh, kind of wield this appeal to authority. If you have all kinds of letters after your last name, you no one is to question you. And we could see the silencing, just like they've done to uh, critics of climate change. You could see the silencing now happening to other doctors and scientists who are skeptical about our approach. And one of them was the YouTube video of the two doctors out of uh, Bakersfield, I believe, California. Yeah. Baker that Hill. video that went the hot doctors, mm. as Liz and I call them. Hot doctors with Rolexes. Like they were in <laughs> scrubs. Like, and then they had the ro the submariners, like the big submariners on their wrist. Yeah. <laughs> on their California tanned wrists. 
yeah. And they kind of had some nice shoulder action going. But yeah. anyway, all right. So we digress. We digress. <laughs> um, but for the, I mean, that video was viewed by millions of people. YouTube took it down because they said that it violated their community standards, which meant, and then I guess they clarified it further to say, because the doctors were questioning the science, sketchy science, I call it pseudoscience of social distancing, that it endangered people's lives and they took down the video. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's just such, such garbage. I think I want to go back to your earlier point, which is this community of scientists who just like the policy experts in Washington, D.C., it's the same paradigm where um, they're all in the same groups and they sort of puff each other up, right? They go, they work at the same institutions. It's like a chessboard where they're all shuffling each other and it they have these prestigious sounding names, even though they're all kind of part of the same family. It's like climate change, right? I mean, you, you get, you, you, you know that, but it's, Again, it's like someone will say, oh, well, this is a, you know, this is a, uh, you know, biochemist who specializes in vaccines. But, you know, he's working with the Gates Foundation. He's associated with the World Health Organization and all these other little sub-science groups that are all kind of in cahoots with each other to credential each other and prop them up. And then the average person hears that and they go, oh, well, yeah, guys, he's a doctor. He works at a fancy sounding place, so he must be. He must be just about the science and not about a certain agenda. That's right. And I mean, I think people naively, a lot of just average people naively believe that we've been told to listen to, you know, the doctors and the experts, even though the third leading cause of death in the country is medical errors. So, um, you know, there's plenty of mistakes. Doctors and scientists are human beings. They make plenty of mistakes. But we know that the scientific community, as they refer to themselves, has been out to get Donald Trump since before he was elected. And they made it their mission, stated mission, many scientific spaces made it their mission to take out Donald Trump. So they are going to do and say whatever they can to exploit this virus to achieve their political ends, even though they won't admit it. But it's increasingly clear that the science that we, the so-called science we're being told about social distancing, about how this disease is transmitted, who is vulnerable to it, um, is completely falling apart. And um, so in, instead of challenging that, challenging people who are questioning it, challenging the lack of science, instead of producing good research, they just continue to churn out garbage, which for example, we saw with the so-called Murray model, completely fabricated alarmist charts that never came to fruition. But does that stop him from continuing to churn out scary charts? No. Has he faced any scrutiny in the media? No. Um, he's heralded as some kind of a hero, but other scientists and doctors who are questioning it are getting shut down and they're on the attack against them um, because they're not towing the the scientific agenda-driven line on coronavirus. No, it's it's um, it's terrible. I mean, how is that guy working? I know we've talked about this before on our podcast about how in the in the sort of in this politically charged environment, people who are on the right side are not fired for incompetence. They're promoted and celebrated, mm-hmm. um, and they get big grants. So, I mean, that basically. Um, 
you're talking about a case of scientific fraud. And yet, does he still have a job? <clears throat> yes. You know, like, of course, it's like they move on, like nothing happened. It's well, very disheartening. It really is. And I always go back to the example of Michael Mann, the uh, the scientist who produced the so-called hockey stick graph, which was later exposed also as a huge fraud because they hacked into emails and found out how they were um, tweaking or making up data. There's other there's a lot of examples of not just poor modeling, but just manufacturing data to show how we're, we're you know, causing climate change. Michael Mann should be run out of the scientific field, but he's not. He makes tons of money on speaking engagements. He wins so many awards. He just got another award from the National Academy of Sciences. Um, so it doesn't matter if he's wrong. It's He is their face. He's their hero. He's the guy that somehow has the credibility, manufactured credibility from the media to keep talking about global warming that didn't happen in all this predict predictions of doom. Same thing with Chris Murray um, out of uh, the University of Washington. He is somehow a big hero instead of a charlatan who should be called before Congress and uh, interrogated for his models that now are really responsible for launching us into the next Great Depression. I don't, I don't even I check the stuff anymore. Like it used to be I would check it every morning and be like, what's happening, you know? Um, how bad are the numbers? What <clears throat> What's the model predict to happen today? Now I'm just like, whatever. I don't even check it. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I have coronavirus fatigue, but do I you used to. Do think that that's happening? I mean, do I do. that's happening with most Americans? Yes. We are getting tired of this. Okay. I do. And I think um, even though people may online in their social media outlets may come off kind of like a little stassi, you know, about you stay inside, you wear your mask. I think secretly they are the ones at the beach, right? That is now <laughs> shut down. Right. Do you see that California got Newsom shut the beaches down in California? Literally, you're not going to get the virus on the beach. That That's oh, right. very unlikely to happen. It's, this is, this is what's so frustrating about, about this entire affair. If this isn't, breeding just a widespread distrust of public and elected officials. I don't know what will, but there are the most random, inconsistent edicts coming down from our government. Like you, you can't go outside. You can't, the beach thing is the worst. Yes. People go to the beach. They almost always are going to the beach with people in their household already. So like you take your family to the beach, the people you live with and are around and breathe their air and touch their stuff all day long. You go outside to the beach with your family. What exactly is going to happen on the beach where you're going to transmit a virus? What does that look like? Are you going to lick strangers? How is that happening? I don't know. But And yet. And yet yeah. it's summertime, it's getting hot and people want to go to the beach and these assholes are like, we're shutting the beaches down for no, re for, for no reason. I do think people are willing to do, take precautions that make sense, but you know, wash your hands, don't touch your face, but now we're at, you can't go to the beaches. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't it's know. Punitive. It's punitive. It's a power grab. You're punishing people who otherwise have been acting in good faith 
while their jobs are disappearing, while their kids are not being educated, while their businesses are closing up. I mean, most Americans, I am not one of them, most Americans <laughs> have been dutifully abiding by social distancing dogma, um, staying shuttered in their house, not seeing their family and friends. They have been trying, wearing masks in public, not traveling, everything that I have been doing. Um, but they, most Americans are doing this in good faith, right? And you have Republic, you have governors, both sides, right? Democrat and Republican. Mike DeWine is not acting any better than Gavin Newsom. Yeah, that's right. Doug Ducey, the Republican governor of Arizona, just extended their stay-at-home order into May 15th for no reason. Well, the reason is because they're cowards, right? So they won't take a bold step like Brian Kemp did because they saw how he has be is being savaged. Um, Ron DeSantis, I'm here in Florida, uh, even though I'm from Illinois, I'm down here in Florida. He gave kind of a weak last-minute stay-at-home order, but he just laid out his plan yesterday. It was filled with um, tropes about the, the experts, the medical and scientific experts. And so he's baby stepping the opening of the state of Florida beginning on Monday and these ludicrous um, guidelines for restaurants. You have to have six feet in between tables outside. Okay, again, based on what science, 25% capacity inside. I'm sure they're gonna make servers and everybody else wear masks. For a state that has fewer deaths, than one zip code in Queens, New York. And instead of boldly saying, we did everything right in Florida, we should be overwhelmed, right? The state of Florida should be overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. They have a high population of vulnerable you know, senior citizens. They've had international travelers in and out of the state for four or five months. And from and New York, <clears throat> and New York, right? There, there's like a hot, there's like a shuttle constantly going from New York to Florida in the winter. So they're importing the disease and still. And, and still, still they're in great shape here. And the stay at home order here has been is more lax. I mean, you could still play golf here. There's stores that are open here. I mean, more stores than just grocery stores. People are out and about um, and they're slowly starting to open the beaches here as well. But it's still a cowardly effort to reopen. And so Republican and Democratic governors are acting badly. Um, and you do have a few governors. We have to give a shout out to Christy Noem in South Dakota, um, the governor of Iowa. There's five or six Republican led states that never enacted any kind of shutdown. Um, and of course, their states are doing just fine. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm going to just wa wait and watch and wait. And I think there has to come a point and it should come soon where the states can't look to the federal government to bail out their cowardice where they think, oh, we're just going to keep getting money from the federal government so we can keep things shut down, or we can keep paying small businesses and businesses from, from they don't have to open, we'll, we'll cover their costs. And I feel bad because a lot of those businesses are victims of their, you know, uh, power thirsty governors making these rules. But the longer they think there's no consequences, I mean, these are elected officials that are not being forced to make the difficult decisions that they're elected to make, which is that the balance between public health and the health of their economy and their functioning state. And they aren't being forced to make it. They really are. And I mean, there were some scary numbers coming out uh, that have been coming out. They are looking at perhaps 30 percent drop 
20 to 30% drop in GDP for the second quarter. You can't even get your mind around those kind of numbers. Um, and so Trump will be held accountable for it, which he should be. These governors also will be held accountable for them in their individual states. Um, but this, there is plenty of political blame to go around on both sides. And um, so, it, but in the meantime, million, tons of millions of Americans are suffering. Um, you know, these poor kids, I, I have to say, I, I have two teenagers. They're already struggling with their disruption in their life, you know, social life, academic life, just normal life. It breaks my heart to think of kids who, and my kids have the best circumstance, right? They, the kids who don't, the tens of millions of kids who are going to be out of school, out of activities, isolated for five solid months. Um, I, you know, it's funny, I haven't heard any educational experts speak out about the consequences of this because, of course, the teachers are all getting a basically a five-month paid vacation. None of them are being furloughed or laid off. So I, I, I'm most alarmed, I think, aside from the economic catastrophe, what this is going to mean for all these kids going into the summer. Well, there's a story today, I think, or yesterday, about how the teachers' unions in California are telling their teachers to raise holy hell if the schools are open back up and they oh. feel unsafe. You know, so that, the, right? I mean, they're encouraging that to say, oh, it's too unsafe. We can't, we can't teach. We can't work, you know? And so right. I think with this and the influence of the media and the scaremongering, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to come back from this if people are still, unless President Joe Biden, who will be the cure for coronavirus, um, <laughs> if it's, oh, if right. it's not... President Joe Biden, the media is going to scare people so that they are constantly afraid to go to work and to go out and to buy things and to go live their life. That's what's going to happen. It's going to take a really long time to open because people aren't given accurate information or useful information there. You know, right now, what are we on? Hour 26 of Mike Pence didn't wear a mask when he went <laughs> to go visit that plant, right? They're absolutely hysterical over that. And now Karen Pence said that they got an email and that Mike didn't know that was the policy when he went to um, Mayo Clinic. And it's like the guy probably gets a test every hour. He doesn't have it. Why does he have to wear a mask if he knows he doesn't have it? What the point, the reason for wearing a mask, the the paper masks, not the N95 masks, is to is to reduce the possibility that you're shedding virus all over people when you speak and talk and the magic spittle with the virus <laughs> floats up into your nose because it's self-aware, as we learned from The New York Times. That's the reason you wear a paper mask. It's to reduce your ability to infect others. If you know you don't have the disease why would you wear a mask? And yet, this is the media. We're, this is over 24 hours. We are The media is still obsessed with the fucking mask. This is, this is, our, this is the information. These are the people responsible for communicating important information to the public. Well, this look, look we see that Joe Biden has the potential to cure everything that ails America, right? So if he wins, the coronavirus scourge is going to magically disappear. We've already seen how he is completely eliminated 
um, concerns about sexual harassment and sexual abuse of female employees or uh, associates. So he's already solved that problem. Um, he's also solved the problem of uh, kids profiting off of their family name, which of course the Trump kids have been savaged for, but the Biden uh, son gets away with it. Um, foreign lobbyist. He yep. also foreign influence. Foreign yeah, influence undo undo election. foreign influence by mm -hmm. I don't know paying 1.5 billion dollars to the um, vice president's kid. You know that's certainly on the up and up. And you know, meanwhile, we had three years of Russia collusion and like some spam bot at the Alpha Bank, you know, pinged a Trump server and. We had, what, 48 hours of headlines and drudge alerts and all kinds yep. of things. But, yes, Joe Biden will be the cure for this. We will not really hear so much about it except in the most positive light of things that are, are happening. But if Biden doesn't win, and I, I, I want to think he can't win because he's basically like his brains are marshmallows at this point, if nothing else, just that alone, Um but if not, we are going to hear horror stories. They're going to hunt down people. They're going to look for people. We're just going to keep hearing cases of this um, yeah. to scare people into submission and not participating or being hesitant or being careful about participating in the economy. So, you know, I don't I mean, I just keep waiting for the shoe to drop on the media, you know, where they're just utterly repudiated. That's just not happening. Well, and so now we'll pivot to the yes. real scandal. It's a perfect segue to our next topic. We're so good at this. We are smooth. <laughs> smooth. Um, is the complete unfolding of the prosecution, persecution of uh, General Mike Flynn, which that case is falling apart quickly thanks to the tenacity of his new lawyer, well, I guess she's not so new anymore, Sidney Powell, and the Justice Department's investigation of the case against Mike Flynn, which is propelling a lot of this. So um, we had news that's been coming out uh, gradually over the past week or so about that case. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about what we're learning? Well, well we're getting some disclosure of documents that the DOJ has refused to turn over to the Flynn defense. And it's required that the law enforcement, that law enforcement and the prosecutors turn over all evidence to the defense, including exculpatory evidence. And there have always been questions about missing pieces that were turned over to his defense. And now Sidney Powell, he had some problems with his prior defense team, which for some weird reason was Eric Holder's law firm. So I'm sure that was, that was kosher. Um, but Sidney Powell has taken over. She's fought against the DOJ's other, another um, ridiculous prosecution by the DOJ, which I'll talk about in a second. So there were missing documents that were obviously forms that we know that are filled out by the FBI, like the original 302, which is the report after he, Mike Flynn, was initially questioned in the White House that when they said he lied. That's always been missing. Um, so anyway, now they. The finally, after two and a half years, the prosecution is turning over do some documents and they were uh, recently unsealed. 
And the latest one we got yesterday uh, included some lovely handwritten notes from the agent taking those notes, which I believe is Bill Priestap. And, um, you know, in his notes, he he asks, you know, what's their objective? You know, should they get you know, do they want to get him to lie? I, I mean, it was it was just amazing to see them talking about how they were approaching this Flynn interview with somebody who had no idea at all why they were talking. They came to talk to him. He was in the middle of a transition. He thought the call was, oh, hey, they just want to touch base with me. You know, we're setting up the new government. We're getting, you know, meet me, come in, hang out. Instead, it turns out to be like a secret inquisition. And so Flynn had no lawyer and they were asking him about this call that he had with Sergei Kislyak, who was the um, Russian ambassador to the United States. And he had had a brief call. I think it was over Christmas with Kislyak mm-hmm. after Obama put all these sanctions on the Russians for interfering in our elections. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. Um, and so he had this conversation with Kislyak. And then for some some crazy reason, the that conversation leaked out to the press that there had even been that conversation. And the... DOJ and the FBI and probably John Brennan um, or certainly John Brennan cooked up and Sally Yates cooked up this Logan Act Mm -hmm. violation, which is the law that um, makes it it, that states it's illegal for a private citizen to represent a country to another foreign country to present themselves as a representative, even though Mike Flynn was the incoming national security council advisor so it wasn't like some rando he wasn't john Kerry or something right who is constantly talking to the iranians to undermine our ability to negotiate with them but so there was this conversation the fbi agents were trying to trick him and we we actually saw it in writing where they they were like should we you know do we get him to lie to us and then we can get him fired i mean that this is what's in their notes it's ridiculous and so now that's quite the um, vindication for all the people that claim that Flynn was a bad actor when actually Flynn was set up that's from right. the beginning. And as I've always said from day one, there was no reason for the FBI to even talk to Flynn about that conversation because they had the transcript of it already. So they knew exactly what Flynn had said to Kislyak. And the only reason to go in there and say, what did you say in your conversation with Kislyak without furnishing him the transcript and also remembering that he's probably talked to 20 other people the same day was to get him to make a mistake when he remembered it so they could say, well, you've lied to an FBI agent and now that's a crime and also Logan Act. So I'm sorry that was a long explanation, but that's basically in a nutshell. No, that's no, that's exactly right. And it's good to remind people and just refresh everyone's memory. Um, It's also important to remember that Barack Obama specifically warned Donald Trump not to hire Mike Flynn when they met during their little uh, Oval Office meeting. I think it was November 9th or 10th of 2016. Uh, Mike Flynn was already part of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation um, that was opened up allegedly officially July 2016. He was one of four Trump campaign associates who were being investigated by Jim Comey's FBI uh, dating back to 2016. So Mike Flynn was all was on the Obama admin, Obama White House's hit list. 
right? Well, the yeah. other thing to remember is that they, they've always disliked Flynn because he spoke out about Obama's garbage foreign policy when That's he was in his position. Um, but another reason... He worked, for, it, he worked for Jim Clapper. Sorry, I just want to... Yes. Mike's mm. work for James Clapper was basically fired in 2015 by Clapper for doing exactly what you're saying, speaking out about his foreign policy, the Afghanistan war, the Iran nuclear deal, etc. So just for um, more clarity... But the other reason that they didn't want Flynn in that job is that the National Security Advisor would have to be told about all of their Snoopy FISA warrants, which were, of course, against not only Mike Flynn, (laughs) but also other members of the Trump campaign. And so Flynn would then know that they had been spot that they had been and wanted to or would, I guess, try. I don't know. Maybe they would have stopped if they couldn't get rid of Flynn. But Flynn would be have to know about that. And so they didn't want to risk Flynn knowing. I mean, it's not just that they personally hated Flynn, which they did. They did not want Flynn in a position where that was somebody who was not controllable. And that's somebody that would learn about the continuing FISA warrants that were going on. Because remember, there was one FISA. The first FISA warrant was in, I think, October. And then after that, the rest of them were when Trump was president. That's right. And the unmasking that was going on. Yes, that's right. Trump's uh, by Mike Flynn's predecessor, Susan Rice, who was who also is a key player in the whole collusion hoax. Um, But also, I've written about this and I'm curious if this is going to come. We're going to get any more information about Sergey Kislyak's role in promoting and planting this collusion hoax, because um, Kislyak was tight with some of the Obama people, including uh, Mike McFall, who was um, awful, awful. uh, is a is a really bad egg. Um, He was appointed by Hillary. He was sworn in by Hillary Clinton, U.S. ambassador to Russia. um, I believe it was like in the two when she was secretary of state. He and Kislyak remained buddies. And Sergey Kislyak was in the Obama White House twice in October of 2016. And if you look at all the various collusion stories, Kislyak pops up everywhere. He pops up trying to get a hold of Jared Kushner, trying to connect with Carter Page, trying to connect with um, Mike Caputo, trying to connect with J.D. Gordon. And he was desperate to reach Mike Flynn in December of 2016. Flynn was on vacation Yeah, um, yeah. because this was over Christmas time. I believe their call was December 28 or 29 of 2016. Kislyak was desperately trying to reach Flynn. And I'm just curious to see if Kislyak was working at the direction of the Obama folks to try to set up Flynn, talk to him or ask him specifically about the sanctions, what they should do, get Flynn to comment at all about the sanctions, which then set up this phony Logan Act charge. Nobody's ever been charged or convicted under it. Set up this phony Logan Act um, ruse that then that's what they used to try to interrogate Flynn and then Sally Yates used it to go to the White House counsel and tell them that he might be in trouble for violating the Logan Act and lying to FBI officials about it. I wouldn't be surprised if he was involved with it at all. Um, We've seen how numerous figures in this whole hoax have kind of set been part of the setup um, that they appear to be like third parties. And yet, you know, like, meet me for a drink in London, you know, like, hey, I want to introduce you to my buddy in Rome, all of these sort of apparent third parties 
all are part of the of the setup. So I don't and I don't think it's ambassadors and former ambassadors. Yeah, and uh, with the knowledge of their governments, I mean, or their intelligence intelligence agencies in their government. So I wouldn't be surprised if Kislyak was part of it. It it certainly looks like Flynn is going to be exonerated. My advice is that he should sue the living shit out of the government for this. Right. Um, Sidney Powell has written a book called um, License to Lie, mm-hmm. and it's about her experience working with one of the gentlemen who got in the crosshairs of the feds during the Enron investigation. And her client was not a name that you would know. It wasn't like Jeffrey Skilling or any of these major major players. He was actually not even somebody that worked for Enron. He worked for a vendor of Enron. And this guy was innocent. And they he was literally tortured for 10 years by the DOJ. And the same thing happened where finally after, I think, 10 years through the different legal cases, and this poor man actually spent a year in jail, they turned over the Brady material, which is the exculpatory material. They kept saying, no, we turned it all over. Oh, we can't find it. Oh, it's lost. Finally, finally, after 10 years for this poor man, they turned it over. And even it's you have the Enron principal saying, oh, no, he wasn't involved. He didn't know he wasn't on the call. All, All it was all there in black and white. But for 10 years, they, and Liz, who was that prosecutor? Oh, God, it was. An, I can't remember, but it was a, a, one of the usual suspects. I, Andrew I, I think it was Weissman. Yeah, it was Weissman. And then there's another chick that was also involved in this. That was also one of Weissman's friends. So in his little in his little gang. So this is no. actually the business model of the Department of Justice. It's not an aberration and it's not bad eggs. It's literally these people have been operating like this for a very long time. Right. And Andrew Weissman, for those who might not live and breathe this stuff, like <laughs> I do, was Robert Mueller. He was Robert Mueller because we know that Robert Mueller had no clue what was going on with his special uh, investigation into the Trump uh, world. This was all directed by Andrew Weissman, uh, who is a wretched human being and uh, is now, <laughs> on, now an MSNBC contributor. So go figure. So Sidney Powell knows this; these people. She knows how corrupt they are. Um, and so that's why she has been tenacious. Mm. And I give Trump credit for not pardoning Mike Flynn, because if he would have pardoned Flynn, we would not be finding all of this out. I mean, we might be because of the investigation, um, special investigation that uh, Attorney General Barr initiated earlier this year into the Flynn prosecution. We might be. Um, but it, I think it's better that it's unfolding this way naturally in the legal system, in the court system, um, it, to see, you know, exactly how betrayed Mike Flynn was by his country, by his law firm, um, by you know, he served his country for 30 plus years in the military, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And what they've done to him is a, a national is a travesty. Yeah. And I just want to point out that while this came out yesterday and we had even more documents come out earlier, our media betters are, why did Mike Pence not wear a mask at the Mayo Clinic? <laughs> They're not covering this at all. There's been a couple stories, and the stories like the story, it, 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 it's astonishing, like what their lead is of the story. Yeah. Like Politico's is documents show 
deliberative, you know, careful deliberations about Flynn interview, right? That's how they're interpreting this. Republicans pounce. Yeah, no, but there is, no, there's a Republican seized headline. I think the New York Times has it. I think you're right. But, but, but honestly, the media is in up in arms about mask gate for Mike Pence. And they just do not care about this literal written evidence that the government was trying to set someone up. And this is the same crowd who produce and fund Netflix documentaries talking about wrongly prosecuted people who are strong armed into pleading guilty. They act like they are unfamiliar with the idea that somebody would be intimidated into pleading guilty to a crime they didn't commit when that's all they talk about normally. Right. That's all we hear about is how all of these um, person after person has been strong armed into admitting or um, they weren't properly Mirandized or just all of these reasons why people would plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. And now all of a sudden they're clutching their pearls. They're like, well, he pled guilty. And they just can't believe that the government would intimidate or force somebody or threaten someone into pleading guilty to a crime they didn't commit. This and they don't even know what the crime was. They can't even tell you what he lied about. Well, he lied about talking about sanctions. Well, what about them? They don't even know what it is. But Liz, you're right to watch the left now defend the use of a secret court to spy on private citizens, to defend pr- corrupt prosecutors who entrap innocent people basically fabricate a crime and entice them into participating in it unwittingly, then, I mean, it's stunning to watch them defend uh, institutions and apparatus that they have criticized for the better part of, you know, 50, 60 years. Well, that's happening a lot lately, too, because now all of a sudden we don't believe all women. We just believe the women who are politically expedient. Um, you know, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of hypocrisy. But as I always say, the problem is that there's really no consequences for being a political operative masquerading as a journalist. There's no consequences to being wrong, printing lies for being inconsistent. There's just none. There's there. So they're going to keep doing it. It's terrible. So. And you know what you just brought up a really good point that. Um, in turn, back to the Mike Flynn case, um, someone illegally leaked yeah. details of the highly classified call between Mike Flynn and Sergey Kislyak. Someone leaked details of that call to the Washington Post. So first, David Ignatius, the columnist, was the first one to suggest that Flynn had misled the vice president about the content of his call with Sergey Kislyak. And then, of course, in February of 2017, full-blown articles in the Washington Post that accused Mike Flynn of talking about sanctions with Kislyak in violation of the Logan Act. The officials who leaked that, they're closing in on who those people were um, or who that person was. And um, but the person who leaked it is a felon, can be charged with a felon punishable up to 10 years in prison for illegally leaking government classified information. Um, That also happened with Carter Page a few months later, April 2017. Um, Somebody, several people, as the Washington Post article said, several uh, law enforcement intelligence officials illegally leaked the existence of a FISA warrant. Now, think about that. A secret a secret surveillance on a private citizen. They legally leaked that to the Washington Post. Those people have not been identified, let alone charged. 
So the well, reason the media keeps getting away with it is the people who are feeding the media this garbage are never charged and held accountable. Well, I thought they knew who leaked the actual. Oh, wait, no, that was was that the FISA? Was it the um, Ali Watkins and her old fat, ugly dude that uh, worked for the James Senate? Wolf. Yeah, but he was not charged with sharing well, the FISA information with her and she was not the one who reported on it. He was only charged with what one count of lying to the FBI under his investigation was they no, were I think it was speaking to the media or some it was some bogus and yeah you know what it was it was lying to the FBI but right. the reason they didn't charge him is because he threatened to bring in the other his 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 co-conspirators because he probably didn't just decide to do that on his own and so they didn't you know because they didn't want to bring in other um, principals involved in the Senate Intel Committee into this and have him start calling like Richard Burr or Warner or any of these other senators involved that they just gave him like a light, a light charge. But yes, you're right. There's all sorts of very illegal things that were done of the most sensitive, the most sensitive information. And nobody has been punished for it at all. Nobody. No. And let's let's not forget that Andrew McCabe was uh, found guilty or was was identified by the Justice Department Inspector General of lying under oath to federal investigators three times. They referred him to the Justice Department for prosecution. They declined to prosecute him. But Andrew McCabe, who served as the temporary director of the FBI, who we know is tied to the Clinton email, um, Clinton investigation, and then, of course, the Russia collusion investigation, um, lied to investigators of his own agency as they were trying to uncover this leak, too, about the Clinton Foundation investigation, lied, and he has not been charged. He is now a CNN contributor. You see a pattern here? I do. It's almost like they were all working together all along. What? Do you think? I don't know. This is all coincidence. It's it is coincidence. One thing you learn after watching these political dramas unfold is that there really aren't nearly as many coincidences <laughs> as people would want you to believe. Right. And this going back to the coronavirus thing, this is why there's reason to suspect that this overblown hysteria about this has a lot to do with the 2020 election. Um, and so there's no reason to doubt that because we've seen that the resistance will do anything, will crush anyone in their way, will destroy anyone's reputation or life in service of getting rid of Donald Trump. And so there's no reason to believe that these same people aren't in cahoots, leveraging, exploiting, destroying the economy to try to get Donald Trump out of the White House. Well, it's not like after these three and a half years, you can you can incredibly <clears throat> say, oh, they they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go that far. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh, yes, nothing's off the table. You know, nothing's right. off the table. Right. Well, so, I think go ahead. Go no, on. I think we're we're good. Do we have anything we were doing a while? Something that we're obsessed with. And I don't know. Do you have anything? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to the day where I'm not obsessed with reading everything possible about coronavirus. I'm looking forward to that day. Or 
I spend a lot of time learning what I am and am not allowed to do, according to my master's here in <laughs> Virginia and the federal government and the CDC. So we don't have anything special like that for you today. But next week, where we hope to be happier, as we say every at the end of all our show, we lament that we're cranky and angry. <laughs> um, but maybe next week we'll be, be it'll be better. The sun will come out tomorrow and happy hour. So. Oh, Annie, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's a hard knock life. No. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and listening to us today. We'll be back next week. Julie will be here. I'll be here. Have a great week, and we will see you on Friday. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.